something curious about this broadcast. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Tonight we are running against time because tonight we hope to bring you our coverage of a rocket launch later on in the show. So without further ado, I'll bring in someone who needs no introduction, so I won't bother with one. How you doing, John? Oh, hi! <laughs> How's it going? Yeah. We're going to get a new president. Oh, God. Yeah. Strangely, before you came on the air, I was actually humming to myself, Hail to the Chief, but I don't know why. <laughs> no Maybe idea. Maybe if there's a song that deals with, you know, making your businesses go bankrupt? Six times over. You know, maybe that'd work? I can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from that, how's things with you? Ah, uh, you know, as that stupid phrase goes over here, it is, was it, it is what it is. <laughs> I hate that phrase, but there's nothing more descriptive right now. Yeah. What, what can you say? Uh, it felt exactly the same for us yesterday when the so-called Prime Minister gave her speech about how we expected it to be with the Brexit plans and everything else and listened to this speech for half an hour and thought, did she actually say anything? No. No. <laughs> Politicians, that's what they do. Have you ever seen Best Little Whorehouse in Texas? Uh, yeah, a while ago, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, then you know there's a song in there about how politicians never answer a question and how they sidestep and yeah. they, they they weave in they ducks so that they never, ever give you an answer, but they mm -hmm. make it seem like they did. Yeah. I'm <laughs> certain that when people go to school for politics, that scene is required viewing. Um, and it was a movie with Eddie Murphy. Was it Distinguished Gentleman? I think it was called. Yes. And that just told me everything I needed to know about politics in that one movie about how they cheat and everything to get the votes. And uh... actually, a couple of scenes from that were filmed about five miles from here. Oh, right. The the scene where he's he's outside, like he he runs outside the buildings and he runs down he's he runs down a bunch of steps and then runs across the street. That was actually the Pennsylvania State Capitol. Oh, right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, one of those little, you know, those little stupid points of knowledge. It's, it's one of these movies that's very understated, I think. Um, when you think of Eddie Murphy, it's not, you know, one of his top movies. But it, I thought it was good for somebody on this side of the pond who didn't know a lot about American politics, and then and it's like, does that, does these things actually happen? And then I looked it up and went, yeah, they do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? As long as we're talking about movies, might as well talk about it because I've seen it and I loved it. Um, Hidden Figures. I've been hearing some really good things about it. Uh, loved ma it. Mainly from people from the space community, mind. I must admit. Yeah. No, I mean, just absolutely loved it. it the credits had just started rolling, and the only thing that went through my head was, I want to see this again. All right. Cool. It's, it's that good. There's a lot of humor to it. Obviously, it tackles a serious subject, but... It's like Driving Miss Daisy kind of humor. Yeah. Dry, not belly laugh, oh my God, that was so hysterical, like Deadpool or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there was a lot of humor scattered throughout. It, it was well-paced. You could see how each of the three women were making their inroads as well as the difficulties that they faced each time yeah, and then how they overcame them. It was such a good movie. I, I really, really enjoyed it. 
you know, just the whole thing with, with being women and black, mm-hmm. they touched on each of those, and I'm sure that some of it was, um, they added some drama to it. Yeah, um, yeah, they always do in these kind of movies. Though, sure. But, you know, you, you could definitely see where even if that kind of, of racial issue or, or gender issue probably didn't happen in real life you can see where it still fit into the context of the movie Mm -hmm. and just the way that those barriers and hurdles were overcome for them to get to where they wanted to get to it was amazing it was such a good movie and there's one scene that i really love because it's just like wow did that just happen where kevin costner who basically plays the entire base civilian commander Mm -hmm. he finds out that the one reason um the woman who plays katherine johnson she has to go all the way across base to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. because that's the only place for colored women to go. Yeah. And there is a scene where Kevin Costner is so fed up with that and he didn't know about it. He Let's just say he takes matters into his own hands. Mm-hmm. And the way he does it is just like, wow, that was awesome. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this clip, actually. They, uh, yeah. they, they were talking on about it on a, on a, on a chat show yeah. over here. Obviously, the three women know each other because they work together as computers, as they were called back then. Mm-hmm. And they, they saw the writing on the wall as it is, and they tried to get into their own and their own ways to advance themselves. And so it, it tackles those hurdles really well, uh, intermixes all of that together. There, there were some other dramatic issues that they changed, like the, cal- the initial calculation that was made for John Glenn's landing and orbit and all that. In the movie, they make it seem like she came up with it in about 30 seconds. But in <laughs> yeah. reality, it took her like a day and a half. But still, it doesn't... It had, It just was such a good movie the way they, they played that out. And I, I, just, I loved it. I freaking loved that movie. As much as I'm not really one for, shall we say, dramedies, mm-hmm. I'm buying that disc as soon as it comes out. What you were saying there about how they the, the, the time scale was messed around with a little bit uh it's it's only like watching an episode of csi where they've been given like a blood sample and they come back with the results within like minutes and you know that's taken a lot longer than that enhance 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 (laughs) you can't do that (laughs) but no i mean it's i really really enjoyed that movie and i mean it, it's been making a lot of money. It's been beating the box office over here. Yeah, um, and, and that wasn't really expected, was it? Um, it's it's kind of like the you know driving Miss Daisy, the older folks crowd and so forth, the, the ones that you'd expect. So I went there Sunday afternoon, and of course there were a bunch of church people who got out of church and let's go see it. I wouldn't be surprised if I was one of the youngest people there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a decent crowd too, but. Um, it's already considered a success because it was made for about $25 million and it's made over $65 million just here in the States. That's pretty good straight away. So that, that right there, it's done a two-to-one, so it's considered to be a profitable one. But it really, it was it was just a good movie. It was, it was a feel-good movie, and it's not like there was any real suspense to it. Because obviously, you know that John Glenn survives. Mm-hmm. But even at that, as the craft is coming back through the atmosphere, there's still this tension like, oh my, I know he's going to live, but... Wow. It's like, okay, come on, come on. And then finally he makes contact. And even though you know he survived, it's just like, 
every time I watch From the Earth to the Moon, every time I watch that box set, you know, your heart is in your chest pounding away because you think, oh, <laughs> please make it. So, well, historically, we know what happened here, but you, yeah. it's, it's so well written and produced that you believe it's happening now and that, yeah, i love that it, it is it's and i don't know how much of it is totally accurate i know that a lot of the lines of dialogue are actually straight from nasa transcripts like there's one point where john glenn uh, asks the girl as, yeah. as she was called to verify the numbers apparently that's direct from nasa transcripts mm-hmm. he really did say that so you know he he did have a lot of confidence in her to get the numbers right yeah i didn't realize that the the one character, according to the movie, I don't know how accurate this is, Dorothy Vaughn, she went into the white section of a library, where she shouldn't have done, and she took a book for Fortran, and that she was one of the first Fortran programmers. Wow. Which, that kind of freaked me out, because I took Fortran in college. <laughs> so, I was like, whoa, Fortran, holy cow! But that made sense, because that's what they used. Yeah. Again, I don't know how much was totally accurate i'm sure some of it was made for for dramatic effect didn't matter it was such a good movie definitely uh, gonna see when it comes out i'll have to find out whether it will be shown locally here because our cinema here in town is it's, it's quite a small affair it only has four screens and it's run by the town itself oh wow so we get subsidized tickets here that's kind of cool. So uh, any weekday evening, it's just five pounds for uh, any movie. Um, that must be nice. Apart from 3D, where it's eight pounds, but that's doesn't even that's quite cheap. Because <laughs> yeah. if you go to one of the uh, the, the the chain uh, franchises, they're like oh, twelve pounds <laughs> for a 3D movie and eight pounds for standard yeah so in the garden city yeah we have this thing called the the garden city heritage foundation which was set up by its founder um there was this uh, quaker guy called ebenezer howard and he wanted to put money back into the community and one of the things they set up 80 years ago was a cinema where everyone who lived in the town gets subsidized um, cinema and um, still going that way today. It's an Art Deco cinema. Huh. It's gorgeous. So yeah, your multiplex things are great, but it just doesn't have the history and the look about it as, right. as the old cinemas do. But uh, they've actually put an extension on the back of the cinema, and it's now a cinema and a theatre. So the, the the big the biggest screen they've got, the screen can actually go up, and it's got staging there so that they can put on plays and uh, have comedians on and all that kind of thing so uh, it's pretty cool okay nah but yeah absolutely 17th or whenever if you can go see it go see it yeah I definitely intend to definitely when we come back from the break we're going to go into a little bit of space news and hopefully we can bring you this rocket launch this is Moscow this is Moscow on the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. Yuri's Night is an annual global space party that was created to celebrate human achievement in space. Yuri's Night UK is having a hiatus in 2017 due to other projects and priorities, but we are putting out feelers for 2018 already, giving us 14 months to find a good venue, get sponsorship for funding, and generally create something special. If you want to get involved and be part of our team of 
volunteers that can put together this event, then get in touch with us by sending an email to yurisnightuk at gmail.com and then we can start the ball rolling. It's going to be a fantastic event and let's rock the planet. This is TGP Nominal. As we all know, 2016 wasn't a great year um, for, for many reasons. And to be honest, we've had a quite a big loss this week uh, in the space community. And we've also lost another member of the space community earlier in the month that over in the West we probably wouldn't have heard of much about. Firstly, we've lost Captain Gene Cernan, who died on the, on the 16th of January. I don't think there's anybody who's probably listening to this show who doesn't know who he is. Um, And he is largely known because of the title of his autobiography, which is The Last Man on the Moon, because that is what he's known for being. And there's been some really nice things been said about him across the the internet. And one of them was uh, a statement that was released by NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden. He said, uh, Gene Cernan, Apollo astronaut and the last man to walk on the moon, has passed from our sphere and we mourn his loss. Leaving the moon in 1972, Cernan said, As I take these last steps from the surface, I'd just like to record that America's challenge as of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. Truly, America has lost a patriot and a pioneer who helped shape our country's bold ambitions to do things that humankind had never before achieved. Gene's footprints remain on the moon and his achievements are imprinted in our hearts and memories. His drive to explore and do great things for his country summed up in his own words. We truly are in an age of challenge. With that challenge comes opportunity. The sky is no longer the limit. The word impossible no longer belongs in our vocabulary. We have proved that, that we can do whatever we have the resolve to do. The limit to reach is our own complacency. And then Charlie Bolden said, In my last conversation with him, he spoke of his lingering desire to inspire the youth of our nation to undertake the STEM, or science, technology, engineering and math studies, and to dare to dream and explore. He was one of a kind, and all of us at the NASA family will miss him greatly which I think it's not just NASA that will miss him. He was very passionate about what he believed. Um, He has done many interviews saying that he thinks it's a travesty that we haven't gone back to the moon. And, uh, well, we totally agree with him there. (laughs) We've spoken about that many times. Yep. And um, friend of the show, uh, Noah Petro, he's had dealings with him in the past and he very much knows how passionate Gene Cernan is about the moon and obviously Noah being very passionate about it himself uh, you can't work in that environment without uh, being passionate about the moon unfortunately I mean they're all they're all in their 80s now we're going to start losing them you know, we're losing the rest it's what can you do that's it so let's see. Regarding the Atlas V, the fuel fill sequence for the first stage main engine is starting. That's a good sign. Expected launch time. Looks like it'll be 746 Eastern. Yeah, that's the time they predicted. Um, 
Now, we have one other loss to the community. And as I say, people in the West probably wouldn't have known about this one. But former Soviet cosmonaut Igor Volk passed away whilst he was on vacation in Bulgaria on Tuesday the 3rd of January. Volk had more than 7,000 hours worth of flight time in 80 different aircraft. He was also the test pilot for the Soviet version of the X-20 aircraft. Volk was selected as a cosmonaut on the 12th of December 1977 and served as a research cosmonaut on the three-person Soyuz T-12 crew that flew to the Soviet Salyuz 7 space station in 1984 where he acquired 11 days 19 hours and 14 minutes in orbit the soyuz t12 mission was a seventh to the outpost and it provided volk with the critical space flight experience that he needed because he was planned to command the first ever crewed flight of the soviet union's buran space shuttle the spacecraft only flew once and that was uncrewed in november 1988 volk also worked as the head of the cosmonaut training program for the buran program uh, when buran was cancelled he went on to serve as a flight test deputy at the Gromov Flight Research Institute in 1995 before he retired the year later. He was also the president of the National Aero Club of Russia, as well as the vice president of the Fédération uh, Aeronautique Internationale. Uh, his efforts in aero and astronautics were recognized on the 29th of July 1984 when he was awarded the honorary title of Hero of the Soviet Union which is the highest award that anyone in the Soviet Union could have got. So he was a very well-respected astronaut. Um, and another astronaut that we lost at the end of December that we didn't actually get a chance to mention was um, Piers Sellers, who was a... Well, he was British-born, but he was one of the originals that uh, became American citizen so that he could work for NASA, because back in those days you couldn't actually become an astronaut for NASA without becoming an American citizen. So uh, him and I think it was Michael Foles was the other one that did it. I think there was another guy as well, but I can't remember his name. So yeah, he, he died in December. Don't think he was that old, actually. I think he was in his 60s. Uh, but he did die of cancer, so... Oh. Yeah, so, so we just... You know, big Godspeed to these people, and um, you know, it's because of these people we, um, or we, when I say we, it's the broad we <laughs> are able to do what we can do. <laughs> I mean, as humans, not not us personally. Right. <laughs> I wish. And they 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 set the path for the for, you know, for other people to to end up landing on the moon. Oh wait, who? NASA certainly doesn't seem to be interested in doing it. They want to go to Mars instead. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we really should. Small steps back to somewhere, and the moon seems the, the the ultimate choice, really, to be able to do that. And as we've said in the past, why can't we use it as a refueling station or whatever so that it makes the journey shorter to get to Mars? <laughs> if we haven't got the propulsion systems to actually get there quicker yet i mean i know they are trying to work on that as we speak yeah what can you say <laughs> i know and it doesn't matter uh, just just two 
commoners like us aren't going to be enough to sway NASA to think, you know what, they're right. It would be nice if it worked that way. If we got the credit for that, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't do that when bigger names than us have been, you know, going for the same kind of thing. NASA has selected two missions to explore the early solar system. They're known as Lucy. Lucy! I'm home! And I'm assuming that it's Psyche. I haven't had a chance to go look, but it's P-S-Y-C-H-E. They've been chosen from a bunch of finalists. So the goal for these is that uh, Lucy is going to go to Jupiter's mysterious Trojan asteroids, uh, while Psyche will be studying. It is an asteroid out in the belt that's never been visited before. And, and what's really unique about this one is that the other asteroids are primarily rocks, minerals, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This asteroid that it's going after is primarily metal. I'm kind of looking forward to that one. Lucy is scheduled to launch October 2021, and it's slated to arrive sometime in 2025. But they say from 2027 to 2033, it will explore six of Jupiter's Trojan asteroids. Basically, these are just asteroids that got trapped by Jupiter's gravity. Right now, it's thought to be relics of an earlier history of the solar system mm-hmm. and that's why they're trying to take an interest in this one and it's going to be basically using the same kind of technology that was used with New Horizon it's going to have a Ralph and a Lori sensor to it the new newer ones obviously so the results from that should be amazing I mean you figure they were amazing for Pluto and how old is that technology now? Yeah, 10 plus years? Easy, yeah 25 so, I would have thought by the time you've done the research know, it's just well, it's been 10 years just for the thing to get there. But uh, the quality on that one should be fantastic when it finally gets back. Now, the Psyche mission is going to go to a, an asteroid called 16 Psyche. There you go. It's about three times farther away from the sun than Earth is. And it's only about 130 miles in diameter. But again, most of the other asteroids that we know out there are rocky or icy. This one is believed to be made of mostly iron and nickel. So that's very similar to what Earth's core is. So there's some speculation. Could this actually be the segment of the core of a planet from long time ago that just got ripped apart by something? Wow. So that one is scheduled to to, uh, take off in 2023, arriving at the asteroid in 2030. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's going to do a uh, gravity assist of Earth in 2024 and then a Mars flyby in 2025. And again, that's going to also be using uh, various technology that we've currently got, uh, such as the near-Earth object camera. So that's going to be used to, to take uh, some analyses of these things. But those are the two, uh, those are the two new missions that NASA has approved. These are, are like smaller budget missions. Mm-hmm that are meant to just explore things that have never been explored before. So obviously we've never seen this kind of asteroid before, and I guess that we haven't really done anything with any of those uh, Jupiter asteroids. That's it. I think there was originally 12 missions that were vying for this one, and these are the two that they chose. It's the smaller missions that sometimes get people excited. Yeah, I love um, the rovers. Well, the rovers, in many respects, Rosetta was a small one of the smaller missions. But um, you look at the excitement that that caused around the globe. That's just amazing. (laughs) Yeah, well, New Horizons. I mean, that. Yeah, even even New Horizons. I mean, a lot of people, when. um, I hate saying this, when Pluto was declassified. (laughs) um, 
every time something comes on the TV about the, how many planets there are, and I've said, no, there isn't. There's one more, and I will not. <laughs> <laughs> You're is... like, I, I refuse to call it A New Hope. No, it's Star Wars. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> so yeah, as I say, the, the smaller missions do tend to get people's imagination going, really. I was reading a book the, the other day. It's a, um, it's, the book is, is a 2006 book. But it's based around a 1950s book, and it's all done in the style of a 1950s book, and it's called The Dangerous Book for Boys. Uh, and it's all little things that you can do, like build camps and tree houses and go-karts and all this kind of stuff. And there's all little bits in there about the planets and things. And oh, you know, it says the Hubble telescope has got this little picture that it's done of it, but it's not the best quality, and we've, it's, we've not been there yet. And it's like, yeah, well, we have now. And it's gorgeous. <laughs> yep. The Russian Soyuz TMA-19M vehicle that took Tim Peake to the ISS has been bought by the London Science Museum and will go on display in the first quarter of 2017. The TMA-19M craft has been refurbished, but it's still slightly singed from re-entry, as <laughs> you would expect. Major Peake told BBC News that he was absolutely delighted to hear that the spacecraft would be brought to the UK. Hopefully it may act as an inspiration for the next generation of scientists and engineers, he said. Flying into space is a huge privilege, but it also comes with one of the highest risk areas, the launch into space and the re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. The Soyuz spacecraft is designed to protect the crew from these harsh conditions, so you get very attached to your little spacecraft because it definitely does save your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Britain's first cosmonaut, Helen Sharman, said it's really significant having Tim Soyuz in the UK. It's not a simulator. It's not somebody else's Soyuz. The fact that our own astronaut actually did things inside provides us with a connection with human spaceflight. It might be only psychological, as it looks very similar to any other Soyuz spacecraft that actually re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, but it's not. It's Tim's. <laughs> Seeing the spacecraft would make children believe that they too might be able to follow in Tim Peake's footsteps. I think that the whole point about all this is the fact that somebody else sat in that seat, and you know what? So can they. That's right. The spacesuit that was used by Miss Sharman on her mission to the Mir space station in 1991 is also on display at the Science Museum. It was actually at the Space Centre in Leicester when I was there in 2014 because I actually took photographs of it. Even now, 25 years after my space flight, people want to touch me. Even though every <laughs> cell in my body, yeah, I know, even though every cell in my body has probably regenerated by now. <laughs> that just yeah that's wow <laughs> she said uh, astronauts might be well trained but basically we're just people like everybody else and there are many other people we hope will be inspired if not to go into space themselves one day but maybe to think about the science that enables astronauts to go into space and make the world a better place. The Science Museum's group director, Ian Blatchford, said he hoped that the museum's acquisition would help inspire future generations. It's, it's a great honour to 
be here to officially acquire the first flown human spacecraft in the Science Museum Group's collection, one which allowed Tim Peake to make his historic journey to the International Space Station, which we plan to share with the public, he said. So he hasn't actually given a, a date of when it's actually going to be there physically for people to look at, but uh, it must have cost them a bit. <laughs> huh. I don't know. Do they? Get, they don't get re reused, do they? I don't think. I wouldn't think so. I mean, if it's kind of like the shuttle where they can replace tiles, I guess they could. Mm, I don't think it would, because if you look at the the state of them when they hit the ground, they look pretty battle-scarred, don't they? Yeah. (laughs) Even though they call it a soft landing. (laughs) I mean, you're hitting the desert at, I don't know what speed it is when it hits the ground, but uh, yeah, the dust and everything that flies up, it makes it look a bit more powerful, I guess. Um, I remember Tim saying that he does feel as though your neck has gone into your body like a, a turtle. <laughs> That's what he said it felt like. So, yeah, it hits the ground pretty hard, actually. <laughs> I mean, most of the um, artefacts that they've got at the Science Museum are, are borrowed. I know we have one of the Apollo capsules. don't think it was one of the ones that actually went to the moon itself. I think it was one of the fly-around ones, so it's probably Apollo 9 or something like that. But yeah, that's that's on loan from NASA. It's, you know, we haven't bought it. So to actually have a capsule that is actually owned by the Science Museum is great. That is cool. Getting a little bit, yeah, a little bit of a UK pride going there, huh? Well, yeah, we don't do a lot to be honest. So when we do something, we make the most of it. <laughs> oh. no, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm just picking on you. <laughs> I mentioned that Helen Sharman was a cosmonaut and not an astronaut there. Mm-hmm. When the actual uh, Soviet Union pays for your flight, technically class as a cosmonaut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, really, there's really no reason to do that except to say which country launched them. They're all astronauts. Mm-hmm. I think every country probably would if they could call themselves something different. I'd probably call myself a space cadet, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I've been called that many times. I don't think it's for the same reason, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've heard multiple times about that one star that supposedly uh, might have an alien megastructure around it. Oh, yeah. You remember that one? Yeah. Uh, the uh, Tabby star? Mm-hmm. But I think they, there might be a far more plausible explanation now. Apparently, the issue with that is it was very, very bright and then had a very sudden dimming to it over the over a few years, which just doesn't really make a lot of sense. So there have been questions on that one was, is it just like large asteroids that are getting in the way? Is it an alien megastructure? Yeah, okay. Well, now a team of researchers from Columbia University and UC Berkeley are suggesting that the flickering is actually the result of the sun eating up either a large planet or a lot of smaller planets. So they said that that would have resulted in a sudden outburst of brightness um, from which the star is now recovering. When it was originally found and it was really bright and so forth, it had just swallowed something or was in the process of recovering from it. And now that it's getting dimmer, it's actually getting back to normal. That's what they're suggesting. But they're also saying that the flickering and so forth that they're getting every now and then could simply be the remnants. They say that if it was a large planet, it probably would have been about the size of Jupiter, which broke apart, got swallowed, you know, and the remnants are what are causing the flickering. Or 
is a significant number of smaller bodies basically doing the same thing that they've, you know, several of them were sucked into the sun, caused this sudden brightness, and now what remnants haven't been brought in are now orbiting or however you want to look at it. And those are what are causing the flickering. So if this theory is really what happened, and they estimate that the whole thing happened probably around 10,000 years ago, and they didn't explain why, but they said that this process would have caused a temporary brightening, which is now, you know, again, now it's, it's suddenly recovering from that, and they determined that the periodic drops in brightness could be caused by the remnants of this planet passing in high, what they call high eccentricity orbits in front of the star. Now, obviously, there, there are going to be those people who are still going to say, no, we want it to be an alien megastructure, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And we might never know. But right now, as it stands, this seems to be the most plausible explanation for Tabby's star, not a Dyson sphere. <laughs> I was watching uh, an episode of the BBC Sky at Night program recently. It's a, it's a very British-style uh, astronomy show. And they had a guest host on there, and it was actually Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he was counting down his top five unusual stars. And he's number one, and I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of it was but it was bizarre because it was um, a giant red star and it had a very elongated orbit and when it goes through its orbit which takes eight and a half years it goes through something that's uh, full of plasma Hmm. and it's crushing this thing that's full of plasma and every eight and a half years it pushes out these like um, plasma balls flying out of this star Um, and for years they couldn't work out why it was doing it and now the the only solution they can think of is there's an actual something in the orbit that as it passes round at that point at the eight and a half year point it's pushing out these plasma balls that shoot out of this star huh really weird can't say I've ever heard of that one but that's kind of cool as long as you're not in the path of the plasma ball yeah imagine it's it's a long way from here so i wouldn't worry about that (laughs) too much i'll have to look it up and um find out the name of it uh, so we can um, put a link to the name of this star there's people probably out there right now shouting at their podcast receiver it's called this (laughs) too late we can't hear you we're in the past Live coverage on the launch is going to start in about one minute. Okay. Weather is observed for go and expected to stay favorable for 7.46 p.m. Eastern. Odds for the launch window of favorable weather is 100%. Well, there you go. Just got to hang in there. So basically, yeah. so what we're actually going to be watching is uh, uh, Atlas V rocket, uh, which is going to deploy a U.S. military uh, unit called the Space-Based Infrared System, or the SBIRS. Geo Flight 3 Observatory, which is equipped with advanced telescopic infrared vision to spot enemy missile launches for early warning surveillance. It's not buying it, but okay. <laughs> and that, but that might absolutely be one of its functions, but I sincerely doubt that's the only one. It's probably got a lot of uh, top secret stuff going on <laughs> with that. Uh, I doubt if we'll get to see the full deployment of this, to be honest. I think the feed will probably cut before we get to see that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe it'll probably go like just after the first stage d- departs, you know, or separates. Maybe then, but uh, I doubt we'll see much more than that. 
Oh, there we go. What's this? Three, two, one. Atlas engine ignition. Liftoff of the United Launch Alliance Delta Forum. That, that's anyway, not, we still got a good 20 minutes. That, that's not the actual so. launch, by the way. That's Complex 41. The Atlas V rocket is fueled and ready to launch the third space-based infrared system for the United States Air Force. Good evening and welcome to Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. I'm Andrea Lenhoff. I'm a parts materials and processes engineer focusing on additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing. At well, anyway, we got 20 minutes before it even takes off, so any issues and we're why don't we just keep chugging along? It's the usual stuff. Eastern liftoff. I think she really needs to take some kind of throat lozenger as well. Um, <laughs> she seems a bit husky. <laughs> So, did you get to see the SpaceX launch? Yes, glad that they're back on that. Uh, obviously, they've managed to get it to land back at Cape Canaveral. They've actually got it to, to land on one of the autonomous drones in the Atlantic on um, Of Course I Love You. But they've never been able to get one to land on Just Read the Instructions until... <laughs> 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 until now and um, obviously being a pacific it's uh, can be a bit rough out there so it mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons what they've been having troubles but obviously they've learned from the landings that they've had in the atlantic and they've used the technology to go over to the pacific and it worked a charm <laughs> yeah that was a great landing that was pretty much flawless I was, I was going oh yeah we're going to get to a certain point and the camera's going to break again like it normally does always what is with that <laughs> it's like every single time something happens and the signal gets interrupted but this one was just oh I've got something I'm going to put in the show notes it was it's a speeded up clip as it's landing and it, I can just watch that for, I'll put it on loop and watch it again and again because it was amazing to watch and it was spot on right in the center yeah brilliant oh. it's, it's going to be interesting now because the next launch that SpaceX do from Cape Canaveral can't be launched from the usual place at the the airbase the, the Canaveral airbase because of the damage that was caused on the explosion oh. Right. So they're actually using Pad 39A for the next launch. Really? Yeah. I did not read that. Yeah, they're using 39A for the next launch. So that's going to be historic. Yeah, I might as well fill in the rest of the audience who doesn't understand 39A. <laughs> well, Pad 39A has got a lot of history behind it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the launch pad that actually launched the Saturn V rockets for the, uh, the Apollo era, and it was one of the main pads for launching the better of the shuttle missions, actually, because B was always a backup. Help. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a very, very special pad, and SpaceX has acquired 39A for use on the Falcon Heavy, which is supposedly going to be launching later this year. We'll see. Oh. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't want anything to happen to the rocket anyway, but it's just one of those things when you add the sentimental value of 39A, it's like, oh, God, please don't let anything happen to that rocket when it's on the pad. Please, please, please. Yeah. So much history behind that. It's, it's like the Holy Grail, isn't it, really, for, for, for NASA? Um, but then when anybody thinks oh. of rocketry, the first thing they think of with the big rockets is that pad. 
and the gantry and everything on there. And it made me think of, I was listening to one of my old recordings when I was at the National Space Centre uh, in Leicester, and they were talking about the rocket that they've got there in their rocket tower. Now, their rocket tower houses uh, a Thor Able United States Air Force rocket, mm-hmm. and that's 176 feet. And that's the same size as one stage. <laughs> of a Saturn V and I'm at the top of this I'm thinking there's another two of these to go wow (laughs) well weren't the Saturn Vs weren't those originally ICBMs Uh, yeah I think they were yeah yeah, those are big. They've uh, had to put the launch on hold for a few minutes. They're trying to figure out a sensor issue for this thing. Right. So the window, the launching window closes at 8.26 p.m. Eastern. So, I mean, there's still plenty of time for them to get it figured out. Mm-hmm. So we just looks, gotta... like, looks like they're holding on the launch for a little bit. Right. Just could keep an eye on that then. It's going to be fantastic to watch. I, I, I'm going to have to find out what, what date that actually is. Actually, I can probably tell you. It should be in our launchpad section on the TGP Nominal website. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be on the 26th of January. It's the Echo Star 23, and it'll be at 11:50 p.m. Eastern. So that's going to be silly o'clock in the morning for me. Um, what? That's only <laughs> four something in the morning for you. You're normally <laughs> up at that time anyway. Echo Star 23 satellite is a very flexible. Kuban satellite capable of providing service from any of the eight different orbital slots and is designed to provide service for 15 years or longer. Nice. Um, it will utilize the um, the SSL flight proven SSL 1300 spacecraft bus which to me right at this moment doesn't mean a great deal but no. uh, I'm only reading this off the small notes that we've got on the website but yeah it's yep. on the 26th of January uh, and they've got a window of two that'll hours. be next year no uh, I thought you said uh, before that it was supposed to be later in the year did I misunderstand yeah um, although okay technically later in, no late January is still later this year I get it yeah but yeah it's, it's 26th of January that's cool. uh, and then also on the 26th of January, you got the Enrol 79 going to be lo- launched by ULA at uh, Vandenberg Air Base. Uh, and that's at 5 p.m. Pacific, and that's got a two-hour window. Uh, it's a classified payload for the National Reconnaissance Office. You won't see very much of that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's another one on the 27th of January, but that's um, that's Ariane Space. Uh, it's the Hispasat AG-1 from the, the Guiana Space Center. And it's going on a Soyuz, one of the Ariane um, Soyuz. Hispasat AG-1 was scheduled to fly as a passenger on Ariane 5 flight, but, uh, but in late 2016, Ariane Space moved it to a dedicated Soyuz STB Frega MT rocket after several delays from 2012. The launch is now planned for January 2017, so this has been delayed since 2012. Wow. <laughs> That's... Wow. That's a long wait. <laughs> that is a long wait. It- I'm curious as to why. Yeah, it doesn't say very much here. I mean, these things do need to be scheduled years in advance. 
I guess that was just the first slot. That's wait. Wow, that's a long time. Uh, oh well. And that's, hey, it's not our call. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be launched at ten oh three and thirty four seconds, and that's GFT. So that must be Guiana time. Which is UTC minus three. So what? Oh god. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> UTC minus three. <laughs> French Guiana. That's in uh, that's in the Caribbean area, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't know my geography. Sorry. It's that direction somewhere. Yeah. It's in the middle of the ocean, so kind of make it's a great spot for it, really. Yeah, a couple of hours difference between that and eastern isn't it so yeah eastern is minus five yeah so so it's that I mean, brazil is something like minus three as well so that's probably on the same timeline isn't it yeah brazil is a lot farther east of uh the the u.s eastern coast than one would one might think somewhere along those lines i've just read something else about the the, the spacex mission that uh just launched the rocket first stage actually landed in near pristine condition. Nice. Uh, and it's very likely that the booster, which has been identified as booster number 1029, um, will be flown again, possibly as a side booster for SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket. Nice. Well, I mean, that's what they wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't blame them. Why throw it away if they can reuse it? And, of course, lots of good PR to properly land those things. Well, well speaking of touchdowns, did you see that uh, JPL released a video of, uh, granted, the Huygens probe landed on Titan, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it, it landed like 2005. Yeah, something like that. But just the uh, like last week, they released a video of the landing using images that were taken by the probe while it was landing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to look at it, you'd swear that it was just a streaming video. But they actually just, it, it took pictures on its descent, to an, on its two and a half hour descent and they've compiled it into a video so that you can just watch it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Are you watching the uh, scrolling banner for this launch? Because it's saying that 11 years ago today, obviously as we record this, folks, is when they launched the New Horizons. 11 years ago today? Today. Wow. So it's a historic day. <laughs> we were asking about that. Was it 10 years ago? So no, it's uh, 11 years ago today. <laughs> That's strange. They heard our question and they answered for us because we are that awesome. That's <laughs> that's my argument and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> hey, scientists have discovered a brand new type of galaxy. Uh, this thing is about 359 million light years away from Earth, uh, and, and it's it's circular, so it's not like it's some kind of really bizarre oval or anything. It's called uh, PGC 1000714. Long distance rates may apply. Um, and it's it's a, called a ring galaxy, where basically it's an external circle of young stars that surrounds an older galactic core. And if you look at one, there's one called Hoegg's Object. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it was discovered in 1950. And if you look at that galaxy, it it looks like a big, you know, he's got this, you obviously got the galactic center, then it looks like there's an open space and then just a ring of stars around it. Oh, wow. And, well, I mean, that that's the kind that they've known about since 1950, but these are uncommon as it is, but this one actually looks like it has two rings in it. So, this thing was found at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, and they found that, that the outer ring of stars is only about 130 million years old, 
whereas the inner core is actually close to being about 5.5 billion years old. But then when they did further investigation on it, they found another ring on the inside of that outer ring that contains even older stars than the outer ring. So you've got 5.5 billion years for the core, you've got about 130 million years for the outer ring, but then you've got a, a layer of stars on the inside of that ring that supposedly is significantly older. And they have never seen anything like this before, to the point that they're not even sure how it got this way, although <laughs> uh, they're estimating that what it might have been is that it, the inner ring is what was originally formed with it, and that the outer ring may have been portions of a gas-rich galaxy that was once nearby. They've never seen anything like this before. Ring galaxies that they know of are less than 0.1% of observable galaxies, and you figure this is a subset of that. This is the only one that they've ever seen like this. So it's like a standard ring galaxy that then absorbed pieces from another galaxy nearby. That's just amazing. It actually does make you think of a ring, you know, with diamonds in it you know, it's got that yep. kind of a feel yeah and so the findings are reported in the monthly notices of the royal astronomical society see i see one ring and i just think one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them <laughs> Ooh, which actually is kind of fitting for this isn't it yeah Ooh, ooh, that's scary <laughs> Have you heard that the author of The Martian just got the go to launch for a pilot of a different type? Oh. <laughs> Andy Weir, who penned the best-selling book, that was the basis for the 2015 feature film The Martian, which starred Matt Damon, blah, blah, blah. For the past several months, he has been working on a TV show pilot, and he's happy to announce that CBS is going to make it. We're announced on Tuesday, the 17th of January, on Facebook. It's called Mission Control, and it's a drama set at NASA. NASA. I did it again. NASA. NASA. <laughs> yeah, but at least I'm sure you know enough to uppercase all four letters, unlike the BBC, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The main characters are flight controllers at the Mission Control Center in Houston. CBS Television Studios announced it ordered the pilot episode for Mission Control on Tuesday. We're about to begin casting it said we're and we have an impressive group of behind the scenes camera people already involved notably uh how can i get this name wrong aditya sued who he worked with on the martian simon kinberg who with sued uh, was also a producer on the martian uh, will be the executive producer on the new series so if it's got the people behind the martian working on it it should be quite good uh, obviously, they can't say very much about it because it's still in its infant stages. But right. um, that should be quite an interesting show, I think. I saw that CBS pushed back that new Star Trek series, too. Not looking forward to that one. But then again, I don't have to watch it. So what do I care? <laughs> so, yeah, watch this space and look out for a show called Mission Control. Uh, update on the launch. A backup plan has been developed to work around the loss of two sensors. The fuel fill sequence... Oh, there we are. New launch time has been established for 8.16 p.m. Eastern. So, uh, 18 minutes from now. Right. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. 
raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal! Damn! I think I found what I might be a, a little gift to myself for when my tax return comes in next month. This is pricey, kind of. I mean, I guess maybe not, but you know me, I love the space shuttle. Yes, it was expensive. It never came down in cost like they wanted it to. You know, it, it had its issues, but I still love that silly bird. There is a compendium kind of thing coming out. It's called Space Shuttle Developing an Icon, 1972 to 2013. And it's three volumes, hardcover and all of that really nice looking slip case and so forth, autographed by the author. And it's supposed to be just a history of the space shuttle from design to retirement and all of that very fact-based uh, you know not nothing about whether it's should have been done or anything like that so kind of like if you just want to know over the history of the space shuttle and how it did you know all the stuff that was done with it it's going to cost a hundred bucks but you know, that's autographed by the author and it's a limited print run and it actually looks really cool <laughs> It almost sounds like an unbridged version of the Haynes manual I've got. <laughs> yeah. Uh, according to this, it's going to be 1,584 pages, almost 3,000 color photos, and almost 1,000 line drawings. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I might jump on that one. Mm -hmm. So it's not published yet. It's supposed to come out next month. Yeah, 100 bucks. I just might do that. I mean, it's three volumes. There's quite a bit of yeah. stuff there. I mean, it sounds quite a hefty... Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Tome. <laughs> there, there you go. It's a tome. Across the universe, galaxies are being killed. And the question scientists want answered is, what's killing them? <laughs> New research seeks the answer to that question. And the study reveals a phenomenon called ram pressure stripping. Driving gas from galaxies and sending them to an early death by depriving them of material to make new stars. That's pretty sinister, really, when you think about it. The study of 11,000 galaxies shows their gas, the lifeblood for a star formation, is being violently stripped away on a widespread scale across the local universe. How local is local? Should we be worried about that? Okay, no, I'm being a, a jerk, sorry. <laughs> You're going to get someone who's probably thinking that way, though. Yeah, really. Toby Brown of the Swinburne University of Technology said the image we want to paint as astronomers is that the galaxies are embedded in clouds of dark matter and what we call dark matter halos. Dark matter is a mysterious material that, despite being invisible accounts for roughly 27% of all of our universe, while ordinary matter makes up just 5%. The remaining 68% is dark energy. During their lifetimes, galaxies can in inhabit halos of different sizes ranging from masses typical of our own Milky Way to halos thousands of times more massive, Brown says. As galaxies fall through these larger halos, the superheated intergalactic plasma between them removes their gas in a fast-acting process called ram pressure stripping. 
you can think of it as like a, a giant cosmic broom that comes through and physically sweeps the gas from the galaxies. Brown says that removing the gas from the galaxies leaves them unable to form new stars. It dictates the life of the galaxy because the existing stars will cool off and grow old. You mentioned dark matter and that uh, that reminded me of someone else who died uh, since the last show. A lot of science that we have now regarding you know space physics and so forth is thanks to her. And that was uh, Vera Rubin, yeah. who died at the age of 88. And she was the one who discovered that dark matter exists. These theories that she came out with in... Uh, yeah. It's just amazing work that she was doing, and and and, and these are the the unsung heroes. Yeah, yeah. And this is why movies like like Hidden Figures are so important to look at. I mean, th there are a lot of things for Hidden Figures that make it important, but still, it comes down to these were three women who pioneered a lot of different things, or at least made significant advances in certain things that we kind of take for granted that you know white guys did. You know, and, and dark matter is the same thing. Well, it's probably some, you know, white guy astrophysicist who came up with it. No. You know, and it's funny to see people on Twitter and so forth talking about how, well, women aren't, you know, genetically, you know, however you want to look at it. They're, they're just not supposed to be able to be smart enough to do this sort of thing. I have gotten into debates with people who think this, which is really sad. Then, you know, to see the things like this. That, that you know that she was responsible for discovering dark matter and her theories have been proven correct uh, th these things need to be told you know, people need to know this stuff mm, very much so very much so I mean if you, if you go back as far as the second world war and the amount of women that was involved in the the enigma decoding device and, and working out the codes and everything the massive team of women involved in that and the, the actual yeah. procedure behind that is just mind-boggling really is watching hidden figures and seeing her putting you know various formulas up on the wall and on the, on the chalkboard i don't know if they were accurate or not but i know that I, I know enough about it that they were probably at least relevant and my brain just explodes when i see things like that i'm, I'm sure they were pretty accurate because you, you're gonna get some I'm sure, because they had close-ups of it, too, you know, where the, the framing was that she was standing in front of the blackboard, and you can see every letter and, and number on the board. Mm. So I'm sure that they made that as accurate as possible. And I'm looking at that stuff like, oh, Yeah, Because you will get some Sheldon Cooper type... <laughs> Oh, funny you should say that because he's in the movie too. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? <laughs> he did a great job too. He, he said he felt very uncomfortable playing that character. So yeah, uh, he he was kind of the personification for racism at mm -hmm. the time. So he had to treat her badly. You know, for the role, and I, I can understand him not being very comfortable with that. He did a great job with it, though. <laughs> he's a very good actor, actually. Especially as the fact that in the Big Bang Theory, he's playing someone a lot younger than he actually is. Well, yeah. <laughs> the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter used its high-rise camera and took a really highly zoomed image of the Earth and the Moon but this thing is considering the distance you're talking about like almost 130 million miles and uh the photo i mean you can actually make out land masses on earth from the quality of this photo wow 
to to look at the picture, there's a there's a a massive land right in the middle of you know the little ball there, and that's Australia. But you can easily clearly see cloud cover and ocean and land, and the moon is also in the frame. It's an amazing picture to look at when you consider the distance, and this all came from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So it says that the combined view retains the correct positions and sizes of the two bodies, meaning the Earth and the Moon, relative to each other. The Earth and the Moon appear closer than they actually are in this image because the observation was planned for a time at which the Moon was almost directly behind Earth from Mars' point of view uh, to see the Earth-facing side of the Moon. It's amazing to look at this, think that it came from the Mars orbiter 130 million miles away, and you can very clearly see Australia. <laughs> it's a gorgeous photo. I mean, granted, it's going to be blurry, of course, but the fact that you can still make out that kind of information from it just shows the quality of the camera that's going around Mars right now. Yeah, it's just fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> Visitors to the NASA Kennedy Space Center can now take home the retired Space Shuttle Atlantis, the International Space Station, and the entire solar system as a souvenir, believe it or not. Yeah, you are going to explain that, because I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> All through a new virtual reality headset and app-driven <laughs> experience. The Space Visor, available from Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex gift shops and online store, is designed to give its wearers the chance to continue their exploration of the complex and the space artifact exhibits after departing from the Florida spaceport. Interesting. Is that available for purchase like Google Play for for uh, Google Cardboard or anything? It, it just seems kind of silly to have a specific visor for that. Well, yeah, I think it is. Um, developed by Delaware North, the company that operates Kennedy Space Center and Brand VR, Space Visor uses the owner's smartphone and a trio of a custom-designed apps to immerse the visitor in a VR world that brings it to life. You can buy it online. According to this, it's 60 bucks. Yikes. Well, well, that's not too bad. It comes with three free experiences to download. At Apple App Store or on Google Play. Ooh. That's a nice-looking headset, too. Yeah, it does look quite cool, doesn't it? <laughs> that is... That actually is really nice looking. <laughs> um, so you got the three apps, right? You got one called Space Dreams, which explores a space-themed room of a young child to learn more about the planets in our solar system, a Mars rover, and a spacesuit. Oh, that's kind of cool. So you can actually feel like you're putting on a spacesuit and stuff. Um, the other one, one of them's called Edge of Home, which gives uses an astronaut's view of the International Space Station by taking part in an EVA outside the outpost to learn more about each module. Uh, the other one is called KSC 360 Expedition, which is a virtual tour of the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. The users are prompted to learn about each of the launch vehicle in the rocket garden, gaze at the shuttle Atlantis, as it was seen in orbit and explore the moon's surface at the Apollo Saturn V center. That sounds really huh. good, actually. It does, and, and that really, that is a nice-looking visor. And it's even got the strap that comes up above, too, to hold it in place, where a lot of these visors only have the one that goes around. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a nice feature, too. Okay, so maybe I'll get two things when I get my tax return. <laughs> maybe. <We'll see. laughs> I love VR. I love it. Um, I still haven't got one yet, but I am I am contemplating getting one. So. Oh heck, just make one. 
Well, I mean, they're next to nothing anyway you can get them for. Oh, granted. Well, I, was, I don't know. I can buy them straight from Google Play for 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're, if they're like 25 pounds over there or whatever. Hold will be extended for launch for a few more minutes. Ugh. Here we go. Atlas again. Propulsion has not yet given go signal. Yeah, so um, that's uh, definitely something worth looking into. I only came across that today, actually. <laughs> huh. So I thought, ooh, that's interesting. The United States Mint will recognize the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing in 2019 by striking domed coins bearing uh, an iconic image from the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, the Senate passed the legislation back in December, and it uh, was also approved by the House of Representatives. So it says it went to the president to sign. I couldn't find anything verifying that he signed it, but <laughs> why wouldn't he? You know, there's no reason I think that he wouldn't. Yeah, all that stuff has to go through Congress. Hello, America. And uh, so it says, with, with the consent of Congress and the President, the Secretary of the Treasury will direct the U.S. Mint to issue as many as 1.3 million gold, silver, and clad coins, ranging in tender value from half a dollar to five dollars each, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing in 2019. Hmm. So uh, they say it's going to be domed, so it's not going to be it's not going to be flat. It's actually going to have a, a, a dome to it. Um, so I wouldn't try to consider it to be spending money. It says that the, the design of the common reverse of the coin minted under this act shall be a representation of a close-up of the famous Buzz Aldrin on the moon photo uh, showing just the visor and part of the helmet of the astronaut in which the visor reflects the image of the United States flag and the lunar lander. So the coins are going to be sold to the public in part to cover the cost of the minting, of course, Part of the money that you pay for these coins is going to go to the Astronaut Memorial Foundation to honor the nation's fallen space explorers, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation to support college students who uh, excel in science and technology degrees, and the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum to fund its new Destination Moon Gallery, which is slated to open up in Washington, D.C. in 2020. That's the uh, exhibition that they created, the Kickstarter program, wasn't there, for um, Neil Armstrong's space wasn't it to get it uh, housed yeah, well, properly yeah they have a lot of kickstarter programs going on i mean uh, they, they also had one to restore dorothy's ruby slippers from the wizard of oz they've done ones to restore certain flags that are of historical significance they, they do a lot of kickstarters haven't they done one for star trek as well one of the original oh i'm sure yeah yeah the original tv enterprise they just finished restoring that mm -hmm. and boy does that look amazing but, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a Kickstarter to help support that one as well. Do you remember that I mentioned in a previous episode that Roscosmos had reduced the amount of cosmonauts that it would be sending to the ISS, leaving uh -huh. em empty seats on future launches? Right. Apparently, Boeing has obtained the rights to the seats from Soyuz manufacturer RSC Energia. Not only that... NASA is proposing to purchase, through Boeing, the additional seats for the International Space Station missions to both take advantage of Russian plans to decrease the size of the crew and as insurance against potential additional commercial crew delays. Ah, huh, interesting. So basically, hey, we got some empty seats here, so let's see if we can buy them up. Yeah. Well, why not? But yeah. it's insurance against additional 
commercial crew delays. That's the bit that's... Uh, they're getting edgy, aren't they? Yeah. That, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's their own damn fault. As expensive and as bulky as the shuttle was, they shouldn't have retired it until they had a new plan ready to go. It, it's... It's sounding remarkably like Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, leave the EU without a plan of what they were going to do if we did have to leave the EU. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll say this in inverted commas. In a sources sought procurement filing on January the 17th, NASA said it was considering plans to acquire from Boeing two Soyuz seats on missions to the ISS in the fall of 2017 and the spring of 2018 and options for three additional Soyuz seats in 2019. Now, a manned commercial crew test flight of the Boeing CST-100 Starliner is supposed to launch in August 2017, which seems highly unlikely at the moment. Right. And SpaceX announced in December that no crew launches would take place until after May 2018. So I'm guessing NASA are uh, getting a bit worried. <laughs> Problem. I'm curious as to why Boeing. Yeah. Why would Boeing purchase seats? Yeah, why and how? <laughs> and it, it, well, I guess it, it, well, I guess the how is just if you're willing to pay for it, they'll do it. But... I mean, come on, Richard Garriott went up there. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. But, you know, we, we've had several space tourists up there. Mm -hmm. But why Boeing? It's almost like NASA is saying, well, we don't want to purchase them directly. So, Boeing, if you would do that, and, you know, then we could buy them from you. That might be really good. But the thing is, they didn't go directly <laughs> to the Russian space agency. They went to the manufacturers of the Soyuz capsules. Ah, that's weird. They went round the back. I don't know. That that just doesn't make any sense. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, we don't want to approach the, the Russian space agency directly, so can we find some other way of maybe shoehorning a space on there? <laughs> that's really weird. I mean, are conditions between us and Russia that... Oh, boy, I could really go into a big political tangent on that one. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> oh, as soon as I said, heard that coming out of my mouth, I was like, no, 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 John. <laughs> Don't go slippery slope, slippery slope. <laughs> it just seems very unusual. And when I, when I read the article, I was like, there's a couple of alarm bells there going, mm, this is a very unusual way of doing this. First of all, going via Boeing and then Boeing going round the back to the manufacturer rather than going straight to the, the main source of... Yeah, that that is just weird. I mean, we can only speculate and, and fire up the conspiracy theories, but... <laughs> no, we won't go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a weird one. Uh, ULA launch director has given the approval to resume the countdown, and the Air Force mission director gave the final go. So now we're just waiting for the countdown to actually start. Did you know that there is a place on Earth where the nearest civilization is the ISS? What? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. What does... What? 
It, the, the place is called Point Nemo, and it's so far from land that the nearest humans are often astronauts. The International Space Station orbits the Earth at a maximum of 258 miles, or 416 kilometers above us. Meanwhile, the nearest inhabited landmass to Point Nemo is over 1,670 miles away. But see, that only applies when the ISS is actually within that range, though. Yeah, but still, 1,670 miles is still going to be a, a longer distance from it in, in that respect. I tell you, this is some place, like, deep in the Pacific? It is, yeah. The, the Latin translation of Nemo actually means no man, and it's a fitting name for a spot so lo lonely it took the fastest sailing boat 15 days, 10 hours, and 37 minutes to get there. And when the boats passed Point Nemo, they were way closer to the astronauts on the space station than any other humans on the planet. Oh, wow. Uh, countdown starting. Cool. Right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I see where they're going with that. That's just... Yeah. It's one of the world's poles, believe it or not. Unlike the North Pole or the South Pole, Point Nemo is one of the poles of inaccessibility, meaning it's one of the hardest places to get to on Earth. Launch is on hold. <laughs> Again. Due to a range problem. Uh, range oh somebody's out on their fishing boat aren't they somewhere um, <laughs> that's normally what happens somebody's in the way in, whatever Darwin <laughs> <laughs> what Darwin rule launch the thing well, I remember uh, once when I was waiting for a launch um, when I was in Florida and they had a range issue it was because somebody had failed to communicate with the Cape Canaveral Yachting Club they were having one of their um, open days where there was lots of boats <laughs> oh. on the Cape and nobody informed them that there was going to be a, a rocket launch that day. Nice. Now, um, going back to this, Point Nemo didn't technically exist until 1992, or at least we didn't know where it was. A Croatian-Canadian survey engineer, who I won't even try and pronounce his name, used a geospatial computer program to figure it out, and he realised that since the Earth was three-dimensional, the most remote ocean point must be equidistant from three different coastlines, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. The area is officially known to the space agencies as the South Pacific Ocean Uninhabited Area. In particular, the Russian, the European and the Japanese space agencies have long used it as a dumping ground because it, it is the point on the planet where the fewest human inhabitants and the quietest shipping routes are. Huh. Over a hundred decommissioned spacecraft are thought to now occupy this spacecraft cemetery, from satellites and cargo ships to the defunct Mir space station. The remains are spread across the ocean floor in bits, mainly because you know they break up on the atmosphere. But some of these things are heat resistant, or the bigger bits are heat resistant, and they get through the atmosphere, and they end up on the bottom of the seabed and they become habitats for a lot of the, the sea life there unless you get something that's leaking from it of course <laughs> and then there's a, oh, yeah. a problem it's not a point of land it's just a point, a point in of the mass. ocean yeah 
Okay. Uh, and remember, when you're there, you've got as far to go forwards as it takes to head back. Yeah. And don't forget to wave hello to the guys in space. <laughs> <laughs> What is it? Use 258 miles for the space station? Yeah. She can go like 260 miles in from any of the outside area. Yeah. And it would still be the same thing. Yeah. So you don't have to go all the way into the center. No. Wow. But that's a hell of a distance. That's that's a lot. <laughs> I'm looking at the photo now because I looked it up. And yeah, that's a, that's a lot of space. Mm. So you can imagine how much debris is on that seabed. Oh, yeah, but you'll never find it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big area. That's that's bigger than Australia. It is. No, sorry. Yeah, it is. It is bigger than Australia. It is bigger than Australia. Yeah. That's the, the Pacific is a scary ocean. It really is a scary ocean. Wow, that's cool. Freaky, but cool. I really couldn't believe it at first. And I thought, well, you know, it's on a TV show. I thought, yeah, TV show. <laughs> I'll look this up. <laughs> On the show notes, there's a video made by um, sailors. When I say sailors, I don't mean uh, Navy. I mean yacht sailors. Uh When they're actually crossing Point Nemo and they're sending tweets up to the space station. (laughs) Because, you know, it's quite a risky thing to do. And who likes really risky sports? Red Bull. (laughs) So it's it's set up by Red Bull to do. Of course. No, I'm, yeah, now that you say that, it's not surprising. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a little video on there by these sailors that were sent by, or paid by <laughs> Red Bull to do this. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting video, actually. So uh, another interesting thing on the show notes. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. How are we going? Still. Uh, launch has been scrubbed. Uh, it has. Because of the delay, the launch window's closing. You see the update? They said that an aircraft intruded into the safety clear area. So somebody flew where they shouldn't have been flying and they killed it. So now the launch is scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, window opening at 7.22 p.m. Eastern. So, yeah, hey, great. Thanks to whoever was in range there for scrubbing the launch. Good job. Right, so that's pretty much killed what we were going to do. Yeah, it did. <laughs> but that is space. That is space. These things, unpredictable completely. Um, so I think that pretty much ends what we were going to do so we better fold up the show here i think works for me so thanks very much for listening to the show as i said at the beginning of the show uh, if you're interested in getting involved with um yuri's night uk send us an email at uh, yuri's night uk at gmail.com and um yeah let's get something going with that john it's always a pleasure to be working with you always fun to work with you sir someday someday we'll meet each other in person yeah we will we'll sort something out we will have to work something out on that and um we'll speak to you all again soon toodles 
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>